Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips video cast number 13 and podcast number three. Thanks for joining us on January 17th, 2020. I'm Tom Hayes and we're going to start off this week. I had a great opportunity to be on Bloomberg Radio twice this week. First on Monday uh, via telephone interview and then Today, I was invited to Bloomberg headquarters in New York City, which was just phenomenal. Um, I'd been there um, years back for a Titans dinner. They had a fancy restaurant. Le Cirque was across the street, but I'd never been inside the building, and it is just phenomenal, the energy and the buzz and everything else. And I was uh, was fortunate. This is a picture from this morning before going on and uh, very grateful for Elisa Parenti who had me on both Monday and today this morning brought me into the studio gave me a, a tour of Bloomberg headquarters and to see the TV and to see the radio and to it was really just a phenomenal experience so I'm very grateful to Elisa for that and we'll have the clips up Uh, You can find the um, clips from Monday under this featured on button. Uh, Those are the Monday clips. And then today's clips should be up uh, probably sometime on Monday, if not over the weekend, but more likely on Monday. And they'll play. It's it's interesting because Bloomberg bought about it's a couple hundred radio stations from iHeartRadio and WCBS radio, and I guess 1010 wins. So for this clip that Elisa does that uh, comes out twice an hour um, during the day, the total listenership around the country for all of these affiliates is somewhere in the ballpark of 40 million people, which is just mind-boggling because TV, uh, you know, a lot of times is a a couple hundred thousand or or somewhere in that ballpark for financial news. So just a spectacular opportunity. I'm very grateful for that. And we'll have those clips out for you. But I'm going to cover in the video cast podcast here uh, most of the themes that we touched on and hope that will help out. So uh, uh, definitely, you know, uh, follow her on Twitter and all the work that she does. She does a tremendous job. Amazing, amazing uh, voice, obviously, and uh, grateful to to uh, be a part of that. So this week's article, the core article that we did was called Are You Tired of Winning Yet? Stock Market and Sentiment Results. So basically, since August of 2019, we, we called for a, uh, a melt-up into year-end, September 5th of 2019, and we, we've gotten about now somewhere in the neighborhood of just under, or right around uh, uh, 17 or 18% off the August lows on the S&P 500, and now well over, I think, 21% off the August lows on the NASDAQ. So we have got, got that melt-up. And the quote that I started with, this is uh, former Fed Chair Paul Volcker, and we're going to discuss some changes to the Volcker rule that no one's talking about later in this uh, videocast podcast. But I, I came across this quote on Twitter this week and just found it phenomenal and, and timely for what we're seeing in the markets. But 
The optimist claims we live in the best of all possible worlds, and the pessimist fears this is true. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we've obviously run ahead meaningfully, and a lot of that was due to positioning, but it also has, it comes down to liquidity, which we're also going to discuss. Um, but it's amazing to see the amount of pessimism as the market keeps going up to see the amount of persistent pessimism. And yeah, we'll get the pullbacks and we'll get the corrections. And there will be those those people that claim victory when we get a 10% pullback this year, um, you know, but neglect to focus on the 57% increase we've had since 2016, um, November 2016. So, you know, the chronic theme since 2016 has been late cycle, end of cycle, and, and it's been repeated over and over, and the numbers just keep getting better, and because those earnings numbers are getting better, uh, prices are going higher, and it's just been a benevolent cycle. So we're going to talk about what's causing it and what could, what could impair it, what could slow it down, and really look at both sides of the spectrum here. So in President Trump's campaign rallies, he said, you're going to start winning so much that you're going to beg me that you can't take it anymore. Please stop. I can't take so much winning. And uh, obviously it was said in jest, but, you know, the, the deal that was signed this week, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, somewhere in between, um, go back and forth depending on the candidate, independent, libertarian, it doesn't matter. This deal was a win, and this deal was empirically much better than anyone expected. So what did we get in the deal, phase one? Um, number one, we got a commitment of 205 to 210 billion. Chinese authorities have actually cited 215 to 220 billion over the next two years. And what's interesting is it's not just, you know, 200 billion that maybe they've done before. It's 200 billion on top of the high watermark, the highest level that they had ever done in 2017 before the trade skirmish began. So this is real impact to our economy and it's gonna have a real positive impact to their economy because tariffs are gonna to start to roll off. Not immediately, but confidence is gonna come back and, and they're gonna be able to resume growth as well. So the second thing we got was that the deal is enforceable. It's the agreement is secured by the tariffs remaining in place on $375 billion of Chinese good, goods until phase two is completed, uh, probably after the election. What's exciting about this is number one, no one expected like what they've been able to negotiate in this deal and to have enforceability, which has never happened in the previous times that they, any type of agreements have been reached with the Chinese, it's just spectacular, and I really hand it to the administration, um, Lighthizer, and obviously President Trump for standing firm through a real storm, no question about it. It was a tumultuous uh, a period of negotiation for over a year and a half plus, and Steven Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who was a, a kind of uh, voice of reason uh, amongst all the different factions in the administration. So. Um, what, a, what a tremendous accomplishment. So not only the farmers are going to do extremely well, which will be great, $50 billion of crop purchases, 
What was kind of new on Wednesday was $50 billion of energy purchases. This is a big deal. This is new, it's very interesting, and it'll be very interesting to see how it's gonna impact the S&P energy sector in earnings power in coming months. And I'm gonna, oh, all right, I'll give you guys a little sneak peek to the last thing I wanted to cover uh, in the video cast. Just this week alone, guys and gals, in the last seven days, energy is expected to be the number one earnings growth. It was the worst in 2019. It's expected to be the best in 2020. Um, in December 31st, the growth estimates were 21.4% for the sector. Last week, they were 21.8. The deal got signed this week, and they jumped up to 23.2% earnings growth, the energy sector. So this is going to be a big deal. And I should have known it was a big deal when <laughs> there were more energy company CEOs at the signing of the trade deal than there were Chinese delegates. Okay, you had Devin, Chenier, Tellurian, ConocoPhillips, uh, and those were just the ones he pointed out in his speech. Uh, I'm sure oh, Harold Ham, Continental. I mean, it was mind-boggling. So this is the real positive surprise because, you know, energy is capex, it's employment, it's uh, it it impacts so much of the economy. And now that we're a net exporter, to get 50 billion dollars of extra energy purchases coming from China, just spread that 50 billion over the sector, which has fallen to 4.2 percent of the S&P, and the kind of impact that could have on earnings power could just be phenomenal. So that was a big win. 75 to 80 billion worth of manufacturing. Maybe some of this will come out of Boeing once they get that 737 handled. We're going to talk about why that's so important. 737 max, and they've agreed to stop the theft of intellectual property. So, but we have a call on that. You know, we do have these tariffs. So if they're not behaving on one of these fronts, we can enforce it uh, or even ratchet up. Ho hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully everyone wants to play by the rules and, and win together and grow together. So when the director of the National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, said that he expected this deal to add a half a percent to GDP a few weeks back. You know, people were very skeptical and uh, and didn't believe it. But now that you see the numbers, this may, the multiplier effects of this, this may be even conservative. Uh, the headwind we have is uh, uh, Boeing, and we'll talk about that a little more, just in the sense that Boeing could shave off, if they don't get, get their act together quickly, it could shave a half a percent of GDP. We've now made it up on this deal. But if you watch the signing closely this week, President Trump made an allusion to the CEO of Boeing to get it together quickly. We want to get it back in the air quickly. And I'm sure the administration is doing everything humanly possible to safely get that get that going. I guess number one, I think they can sell some stuff to China, which would be very good. And number two, um, it's not just that half a percent of GDP. Boeing's earnings power growth estimates came down by about $5 in the last 60 days. What's amazing about that fact is that despite losing five dollars of earnings power to the uh in boeing the s p 500 has retained a nine and a half percent earnings growth rate near double digit earnings growth rate 
for 2020. The last time that happened was 2016 to 2017 after three neg negative quarters of earnings growth, just like we had in 2019, three negative quarters of earnings growth. And the S&P rose from Q4 of 16 to Q1 of 18 in those uh, about five quarters, if you, it was a half of each quarter, so call it five quarters, the S&P rose 37%. Uh, discounting, it was about 11% earnings growth that was realized in 2017, 2016 to 2017. So we're at 9.5% for 2020. If Boeing restored their run rate or just restored what they've lost in the last 60 days because they were already impaired 60 days ago from their peak earnings, the earnings growth rate for 2020, if we just got back that $5 that we lost in the last 60 days, would be 12.33%, which is bigger than 2016 to 2017 when the S&P rallied 37%. So this is kind of a, an aberrational situation that's not really related to the economy. It will impact it because it's going to impact suppliers. But if Boeing pulls itself together quicker than expected, not only would that earnings growth rate jump back up to 12.3, it could actually jump even higher because, you know, Facebook, uh, uh, that's how a duopoly works, okay? When, when Boeing gets their plane back in shape, they're not going to go have to knock on doors saying, please buy my plane or run ads on Facebook to get customers. <laughs> Duopoly, the customers are there. All you got to do is deliver what you said you would and, and you've got the backlog and the earnings will just pop right back up. And what that would do to the S&P 500 and multiple expansion and everything else would just be spectacular. So that's my two cents about the the China deal being better than expected. I was talking about that in December on a couple media appearances, I said it's better than expected. And what no one's looking at is that um, CEOs and CFOs, although they were at their highest pessimism level since 2009 before the deal in December, they could start to take guidance up once we got a deal. And you could actually see that clip here. It's the first one on first or second Fox business clip under featured on where I talked about that. And now it's starting to happen. So um, what's also happening is uh, this concept called pinning. So for the last few weeks, shifting gears here now, we've acknowledged that the short-term indicators were a bit stretched, but we also warned that due to positioning and other factors, we wouldn't be surprised to see them stay pinned um, like they did from 2013 to 2015 and 2016 to 2018. So you can click here to see what that means. And that usually happens when you're coming out of a deep trough like we had in 2016 and we had in December of 2018. It can just keep going and going and stay overbought for a while. And, and we've had that condition. So when's this rally going to end, this nonstop rally? Um, we called for the melt-up on September 5th. We got it. Now... Uh, and it's about 17% on the S&P off the August lows when everyone was going into bonds due to the inversion scare. And it's now up probably uh, closer to 22% on the NASDAQ. Now, the, the average 
at that point when we were calling for the melt up, we made two cases as to why we might want to be patient. Number one was we looked at the last three times the twos and tens inverted, yield curve inverted on the twos and tens. And what happened in those three instances was on average, the S&P rose another mid 30%, about 35, 36% on average over the next 18 months after the inversion. So when everyone was going into bonds in August, we said, now's the time to go into equities because if this is the end of cycle, we've got another you know year to two years and you're going to get the largest amount of growth in the shortest amount of time. And we're all, we've already seen uh, almost half of that now. And the second thing that we talked about was the earnings after three negative quarters of earnings growth, like 16, you could get a mid-30s rally for that. So that's the good news. For those of you who are in the late cycle camp, you think this is late cycle versus mid-cycle, the good news is it, it justified a mid-30s rally. The bad news is we've consumed about 17% of that now. So there's you know maybe 20% left on the NASDAQ if you think this is end of cycle, which is awesome. I mean, that could be another great year, year and a half plus if history is any prologue. Uh, so that is the case that we made and that's what's starting to happen. So you can review that here. And the three negative quarters of earnings growth, you can go through that. So are we late cycle or mid cycle? And the jury is still out. So consensus is that we are late end of cycle, but that's also been the consensus since 2016, and you can see what's happened. So, like I said, beware. When we get a 10% pullback this year, you know, people will be claiming victory for, quote, calling it, but, but forget to mention the other 57% of upside that preceded the, quote, crash since late 2017. So... Be careful not to get caught up in that. Now, if the data deteriorates and we see earnings come in, then, then it's another story. And we'll talk about what could um, set us back uh, just as we're talking about what positive things are propelling us forward. So that's where we are. Um, now, here's what I would need to see to confirm that it is mid-cycle uh, versus late cycle. Number one, the discount rate. The Fed follows through on no raises until 2021 and lets the economy run a bit hot like they did in 1995. Chair Powell acknowledged that they raised too fast in 1998. So they did three emergency cuts in 98 for the long-term capital management crisis, LTCM. And uh, because they raised seven months right after they did the three cuts. Now, that cut the cycle short because uh, the market peaked because of that in March 2000. And what he said in his most recent meeting, which didn't get enough coverage because everyone was focused on the China deal that week, is that he is really earnestly focused on increasing the labor force participation rate. And the only way to force another two to four million people back into the workforce is to let wages run a bit hot. So, you know, the peak labor force participation pre-crisis was like 67 percent. Then it dropped down to 63 percent. And he thinks he could get it up. He could get it up to, you know, maybe 65 percent, which would be another couple, two, three, four million people back into the workforce if he achieves those goals. And the only way to do that is let it run hot, let inflation run a little a, ahead of target and you know those increased wages will 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 attract people back in second thing the fed has to do 
is they've got to maintain the liquidity and unwind the $785 billion of quantitative tightening that they executed from 2017 to 2018. So, so far since August, they've restored over $400 billion of liquidity, uh, which is very constructive, but it's not enough. So on Tuesday of this week, they committed to continue liquidity operations until mid-February and then taper down. So we're going to talk about the pluses and the minuses of that. The pluses is, is maybe they can get up to $500 billion before they do that. The minuses are that the market's going to discount to start to discount the tapering. And there's no reason to taper at this point because there is no inflation, number one. And number two, it's a lagged effect. So they tightened eight plus times in two years and sucked $785 billion of liquidity out of the market in 2017 and 2018, and they finally got what they so earnestly wanted, which was a slowdown in the economy in 2019, as evidenced by three consecutive quarters of negative earnings growth, uh, Q1, 2, and 3. So then they realized this summer that, oh, we went too far, and they did an about-face, $400 billion liquidity inje injection, three cuts. But they've, So they've only unwound half of quantitative tightening, give or take, and half of rate tightening, um, or less than half of rate tightening. So there's potentially more to do on that front. Certainly on the liquidity side, rates, I don't think they're going to make any more moves up or down. And I think that's enough. They got the three done quickly. Um, if they do follow through with this tapering of uh, the liquidity injection mid-February, my guess is based on what we've done and we're going to have some consolidation in February, some sideways choppiness to digest the big gains, 21% plus in the NASDAQ since August, is 17, 18% in the S&P. And that will be kind of the catalyst for it to get a little choppy in February would be they start to forward guide that we're going to pull back on uh, the liquidity op repo operate, liquidity um, short end of the curve operations um, and that that could cause some digestion in February so just be on alert if they keep the pedal to the metal then then uh, there's no telling what could happen especially if guidance goes up that's that's the key thing but uh, a lot depends on the Fed right now now the third thing which we just touched on is stable to increased earnings guidance so now that there's clarity on trade the phase one is signed we need CEO and CFO sentiment to start to thaw and slowly start to increase investment, CapEx, spending, and take their earnings guidance up. Because in early December before the deal, it was at 2009 levels. The good news is when it got that low in 2009 and 2001 and December 2019, uh, those were bottoms, not tops. So uh, I would be more worried if sentiment would, got that low in 2007 and then we crashed, but it's, it, it happens after the crash, about a year after is where that sentiment bottoms. And if you remember, we had a big crash about a year ago. So um, if we see a turnaround, which we're starting to see in guidance, not in, you know, it's only a week in, uh, some really good things could happen um, as they start to invest in, and have that clarity and visibility to move their businesses forward. 
Next thing I would need to see to determine that this is mid-cycle versus late cycle is some sector rotation. So in order for this performance to persist, we're going to need some sector rotation under the surface and discontinue the reliance on a handful of stocks. The good news is we know this is possible as Amazon, Netflix, and Facebook took a back seat during certain periods in 2018 to 2019, while Microsoft and Apple stepped up to pick up the slack. So we're going to look to see if new sectors can start to contribute and make it a more sustainable rally. Right now, the worst three sectors of 2019 are projected to have the highest earnings growth rates of 2020. Energy at, uh, well, it's actually just increased. It was 21.8 on Thursday. Now it is 23.2. So that's really jumped. And I think a lot has to do with this China deal, which is exciting. Um, followed by industrials and materials. So this rotation doesn't have to come at the expense of tech. So don't think like they're all going to crash and everyone's going to buy energy stocks. That's not going to happen. But rather, uh, it will be a supplement to earnings as they start to carry their own water in 2020 is my, my view. So you can review our thesis on exploration and production energy subsector here. And in this J. Paul Getty energy stock market, article if you're on the podcast just uh use our search bar on the site put in uh j paul getty and it, the article will come right up or you can just click on um uh click on sentiment all of our weekly articles come up under that category but in here there are quite a number of other three or four other articles one in the financial times that jennifer ablin did which i was uh, really happy to be a part of um, where we kind of talked about the sector buying a basket and treating it like a basket of high-yield bonds because everyone fears the leverage, but that's what should actually be embraced. You should assume that 10% are going to default, but the 90% that are remaining will be could, could be up you know, one, two, three X over the next three to five years. So uh, when you go through this article here, this is our original article, the one about snake oil, how portfolio managers view E&P stocks, then the Taylor Swift bad blood energy market and sentiment results, and then uh, Jennifer Ablin's article in the Financial Times. Those are very important if you want to understand the thesis on the sector. Fifth thing I'd need to see for this to be mid-cycle versus late-cycle is the natural byproduct, if we get increased guidance uh, and we get the Fed remaining accommodative, that lower discount rate plus earnings growth equals multiple expansion. So although we're currently at a 18.5 times forward, a late cycle multiple with the current discount rate with the 10-year at around 180 could hit a level in the low 20s before the cycle ends. But keep in mind, if Boeing gets back on track, that multiple is going to drop dramatically despite the interest rate. So it would drop, if you got that $5 back, forget $10 or $15 to their normal run rate, and the S&P growth rate went back up to 12.3%, or it could go to 13 or 14 if they really came back, but let's just call it 123 uh, That would drop the multiple down to like mid-17s, and then you'd get expansion, and that's where we kind of go into here. If uh, Boeing can come back 
you could see 3650 on the S&P at some point this year, which would be a 13.5% uh, plus return in 2020 for the S&P 500 and maybe more. But, uh, you know, we had a monster year in 2019. This would be a really nice target. The consensus Wall Street target is still like 3471, which makes no sense because what that basically means is they expect the S&P to go up six some odd percent while earnings are going up 9.5%. So either they expect multiple contraction or they expect a deterioration in earnings, which so far they're going up. Um, but it's recency bias from uh, pre-China deal. Now, the opposite is also true. If two of these six factors fail to materialize, and forward guidance comes down, we could see multiple contraction and all bets are off and the bears will be right. And, uh, you know, it, it'll be the end of cycle. This is, a, this is a lower probability scenario in my view. It's still possible, which is why we watch the data very closely company by company as it comes in. And so far, so good. Now, an important note on bank earnings because they, on balance, blew the doors off this week. Um, and I couldn't quite figure it out because when I heard that there were all these trading profits, it made me a little nervous because I figured, oh, goodness, this is some one-off situation that there was a dislocation in the market and they all jumped on it. And how is it going to be recurring? Uh, Citigroup's trading revenues were up 28% year-on-year, J.P. Morgan 56%, Goldman Sachs 63%, and Bank of America even was up 25%, so in bond trading revenue growth year-on-year. -year. So why are they having all these trading profits? Um, I thought Dodd-Frank put, put an end to that, and that's you know what's changed. You know, One of President Trump's President Trump's pillars of economic growth is deregulation. So prior to the crisis, banks made a, a lion's share of their profits from trading, prop trading in particular, particular, and the Volcker rule really cracked down on prop trading. So the line was blurry between market making and what they were doing for their clients and what they were doing on a speculative basis. But once the new regulation came into effect and the climate, they just all basically dropped it. And you saw it in their earnings power, it just, you know, they basically became utilities post-crisis. Last August, the FDIC and the OCC approved a rule to amend and simplify the compliance requirements of the Volcker Rule, which was a centerpiece of the Dodd-Frank Act. And you can read the changes, but the basic summary is that big banks are now presumed to be in compliance versus having to prove that they're in compliance on a daily basis. And this is supposed to officially go into effect January 1, even though it was signed, uh, signed up in August of 19. But Q4 was the first quarter since it got signed in August. And my sense is that they're test running what will be the normal environment going forward and probably the regulator said this is signed in it officially goes into effect you know in january but start to operate in that manner and if that's the case we certainly saw what that looks like in the earnings this week it's off the charts which means it's not one off which means it could be recurring which means the game could change and if you think about banks were 22 percent of the s p 500 weight before the crisis, now they're down to 13%. So there's a ton of room to make up lost ground 
in coming years as the shackles come off and earnings can grow once again. And uh, for those of you who live in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, we have a place in uh, in New York, but we're full-time in Connecticut. But, uh, um, you know, it could really revive the area as bonuses start to come back uh, from, from the big banks. So um, for those of you in Connecticut, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not an oncoming train. Okay. So, and furthermore, the opening of the Chinese markets to U.S. financial services uh, this week with the China deal, that's not going to hurt either. That, that could be a big opportunity. So, shorter term view, what happened this week? AAII sentiment jumped up. People got more bullish. So, yeah, there's froth. Uh, this is an extreme-ish level, so it's not the area you want to be adding a lot of new risk. Uh, um, and what you what what we had been adding in recent weeks was those sectors that had not yet participated. So we were taking off from the names that have gone up dramatically since August and September, and reallocating into some of those areas uh, that um, that had more upside potential that uh, had just started to participate. So we did a lot of energy from October to December, and we selectively add there and um, and some other uh, selective names, etc. The fear and greed index this week, um, that did not confirm the retail bullish sentiment. It fell actually a few points week on week, so mix there. And the National Association of Active Investment Managers, that came up a little bit to 94%, but as you can see in these periods, uh, like 13 to 15, it can stay pinned up here. In 16 to 18, it stayed pinned, and now we're starting to stay pinned as well. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that moving forward. And our message was really the same message. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we remain bullish intermediate term for 2020 on balance. For 2020, we are intermediate term bullish. Um, we, we've trimmed the names that have run huge off of the August-September lows, reallocated to some of the laggard sectors and names, and we also recently added a few selective shorts. Uh, the short positions are not due to bearishness per se, but they're special situations that we believe will work even in a sideways choppy to an up market and outperform in the event of a pullback. So you can review our previous notes under the category sentiment on the right side of the site. And last couple of quick things we'll cover and then we're done for this week is the we did the Dow. We try to do two sectors per week of uh, updating earnings estimates and guidance. This week, um, the Dow plus the top eight weights of the S&P 500 that are not either in the Dow or the NASDAQ were down 1.97% in the past 60 days. But again, a lot of that is due to the downward revision in Boeing. So as Boeing recovers, these things will just slingshot back. Um, but we're not there yet. So that's what happened with the Dow. That was largely a Boeing story. And then today we put out the earnings guidance moving up. Uh, for the first time, uh, 2020 estimates this week moved up 10 cents, okay? It's not something to write home about, but it's a start of a trend that no one was looking for and no one expect, expected. So now we're uh, still at 9.5% earnings growth, but from 177.64 to 177.74. And uh, we discussed the Boeing story earlier and the the 
huge jump in energy earnings estimates this week is just phenomenal. So a lot of good things happening. I want to thank you for tuning in this week. If you like, if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, check out our website at hedgefundtips.com. Get the free newsletter if you're interested. And we'll see everyone back here next week. Same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.